dive right in. Um, I know I've told this story before, but 30 or so years ago, um, when Esther and I were newly married, uh, we went to, by the way, I'm sporting the gear because, you know, we know that's, we'll win if we do that. Um, that's how that works. There's like rules. There's rules. Um, whichever pastor wears the right jersey kind of thing. Um, no. Uh, so, so Esther and I go to a, a Christian crusade that was at Kemper Arena. So I'm dating myself right there. Um, there's probably 12, 15,000 people um, all worshiping God together. And it was amazing. Um, the worship was huge and loud and full contact. The atmosphere was electric and God's presence was like on tap. It was awesome. Esther and I were both all in. And the main point of the service was this kind of healing and deliverance time at the end. So the message was short and it was basically it came right at the end of worship. Um, and it was a very simple salvation message um, followed by an altar call. And the preacher who delivered the message did a great job. Um, and when he started the altar call, like several hundred, maybe a thousand people, got up out of their seats and walked down to the altar um, to accept Jesus. I was just in tears. Like I was, I'd never seen that many people come to Christ all at once. And, and, uh, and it hit me deep. I was rocked. And, uh, and you know how there are certain things you shouldn't do when you're in a, a, the wrong mindset for that activity? Like we all know you shouldn't drive drunk. That's for sure. You shouldn't grocery shop when you're hungry. We all that know that one. Like, you'll way overspend. Um, you shouldn't get on Amazon when you've had a bad day. Like, that's, that's real. We all know how that works. And, uh, and you should never, like, text your ex after your third pint of Ben & Jerry's. Like, you're just not going to feel good about yourself. Um, well, I learned that night at the crusade that you don't, you don't give when you're emotional. Um, because I'll be darned if they didn't pass the offering, like, right after a thousand people go down to the altar. Um, and uh, so like half of Kansas City just got saved and and I don't know how a person could not just go crazy and give in that environment. And so luckily for me, I had just cashed my entire paycheck for a couple weeks um, that very day. And when the basket came by without a single red flag or alarm bell going off in my head, I reached in my pocket, pulled out all the money that we had in the world and I threw it in the offering basket and I felt great about it. Uh, but here's the deal. Those alarm bells that were weirdly absent when I was giving went off the second I saw Esther stiffen next to me. Um, she knew what was in my pocket, and, uh, and she knew what that meant. Um, and that's when I thought I probably should have talked to her first um, before I did that. But uh, that was when Esther learned that, um, you know, one of the risks of marrying or partnering with a fairly new believer is that they haven't learned how to doubt yet. And so... Um, you know, newbies might actually believe you when you tell them that you can't outgive God. Um, and I did. And so God obviously took care of us. Um, we were rewarded for giving. But the story kind of introduces our painful and profoundly uncomfortable topic for this morning, giving. <laughs> and here's the deal. Half of you are, it, you should probably um, pray right now that you don't need to go pee during this service. Because if you get up and walk out at any time, we're going to judge you. And probably talk about you while you're gone, um, because nobody wants to hear this message. Um, <laughs> nobody wants to talk about what the Bible has to say about our finances, and, and, uh, and so it's tough. I'm kidding. We won't judge you out loud. Um, but if, you, <laughs> if you've been here for long, you know that I don't talk about money very often, and I get really uncomfortable whenever I do. But this morning, there's a couple of things we need to consider. Um, first, this series we agreed to talk about 
hard things. Um, we talked about our sin. We talked about um, how it can affect our ability um, to share Jesus with our neighbors and our coworkers and even our family. Um, we talked about our health, um, our spiritual health, our emotional health, our physical health. It matters. Um, why, why would a hurting world um, come to us for help if we are just as big of an unhealthy mess as they are? Um, and obviously that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. Um, we're wounded healers. But, uh, but we need to be intentional, intentionally engaging and growing healthier in our relationships with God, healthier in our relationships with ourselves and with other people, and, and even healthier in our bodies. So, so we've talked about our sin. We've talked about our health. Why not talk about our money? Um, and the second thing we need to consider is, uh, uh, as we get kind of uncomfortable this morning, is that the Bible talks about money a lot, a lot. Um, we, uh, we're comfortable as Christians talking about our heart. We love God with all our heart. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God changes our heart. Jesus lives in our heart. God said he'd write his words on our heart. He'd exchange our heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Um, we desire to, he promised to give us the desires of our heart if we commit our ways to him. We talk about the heart all the time. In fact, we, uh, we talk about it so much that it can sometimes kind of grow vague, uh, like we don't even really know what we're talking about, um, which is okay because Jesus gave us this like x-ray machine. Um, that we could use to find our heart if we ever lose it. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says, if you don't know where your heart is, look in your wallet. Or maybe check your bank account. Or maybe your investment portfolio. Jesus says, if you're 100% invested in the here and now, then your heart will be in the here and now. So if you, if you want your heart to be set on eternity you have, and have eternal impact, you actually have to invest and put your treasure in eternal things. So as much as we hate talking about money and as much as we've all grown sick of hearing churches ask and beg for and manipulate and guilt trip to get money, we can't skip this topic and pretend like we actually study the Bible because it is all through the Scriptures. It's everywhere, cover to cover. And, uh, and I do think that how we manage money will impact our ability to go into the world and make disciples, um, which is the theme that God has kind of dropped on my heart for us for this year. This is the year of go. And so this morning, um, whether we like it or not, we're going to wrestle with this question, are you generous? Because as much as I hate talking about money, this is a big question. I talked a couple of years ago about how, um, or a couple of weeks ago, I mean, about how in the first couple of centuries of the church, um, when Rome was trying to figure out how to stop this kind of crazy Jesus movement, um, one of the, the king, one of the emperor's advisors um, had written a letter to Caesar, and we've actually got that letter. It's kind of a neat read. But, um, but he told the Caesar that, that, that Rome needed to be more generous to its own widows. Part of the problem was that Christians took care of all widows. They didn't care if it was a Roman widow or a Christian widow or a Jewish widow or a Gallic widow. They didn't care. If there was a widow, Christians took care of them. And so this advisor was like, you know, it would probably hurt the Christians if we actually took care of our widows. <laughs> that might go a long way because they're winning converts away from Rome by being generous. It was the same with orphans. The Christians are so generous that they were, they were changing, they were taking over Rome little by little with their generosity. And it was making Rome look bad. Generosity was a hallmark of the church from the very beginning. And actually, when I say beginning, I mean the very, very beginning. Luke in the book of Acts tells the story of the birth of the church, like the day the church was born. It was the day that the Holy Spirit fell and the very first sermon was preached and the very first group of people repented and were baptized and, and put their faith in Jesus. The birth of the church. 
And this is how Luke wraps up that story at the end of chapter 2. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, and anyone, uh, as anyone had need. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is a, kind of a snapshot of the early church. That, that's like a painting. It's words on page instead of oil on canvas. But it's a painting of the very first iteration of what we're supposed to be. Studying the Bible, eating food together, praying, seeing God do things only God can do, and being generous. And when the church did those things, the Lord added to their number every day. And this model is important to, to us here at Open Table. We, we, don't, we don't have small groups because we read a church strategy book that said the best way to maximize effectiveness amongst Gen Z and millennials is to blah, 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 blah. Notice I didn't say Gen Z, or I said Gen X. I, I didn't say Gen Z because we know they're lost. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, small groups aren't a strategy. They aren't like a church program designed to do, you know, certain things. They're, they're part of the church's DNA. The, they, uh, they listen to leaders. Their leaders teach, which is why we gather weekly and everybody sits and listens to me ramble for a few short minutes. Um, they fellowship and eat food together, which is why we get together in small groups. That's why they're so important. The church has literally done that from day one. We didn't make that up. But notice how simple this list is. And believe me, I, I, I know things are always simpler at the beginning. Um, they just they go more and more complex as they get bigger. But that earliest church was pretty simple. And, and there's something beautiful about the simplicity. They listened to some good teaching. They hung out and ate together. They prayed. And they gave. They were generous. And that was the church's part. That's what the church did. And then God did His part, which was answer with signs and wonders and grow the church. It's such a clean picture. It's, it's beautiful. Some simplicity is beautiful. So deep into the very fabric of the church's being is this generosity. It showed up on day one. Not knowing what else to do when the Holy Spirit fell on them, they said, we should share things. We should, we should care for those who have needs. That was like one of the very first just instinctive things they did. Between generosity and, and, and church growth, there's this connection. This connection between giving and going. And by that I don't mean growing like more people in our local church, but like people getting saved in the church proper. Like more people coming to the kingdom. And this also wasn't just some fad that the church did for a little while and then grew out of it. Paul was still teaching this in his letters much later in the New Testament. You could argue that, that the, the book of 2 Corinthians is just a letter written for the express purpose of raising money for a church that was hurting. And that, spirit is, that, that same spirit that was alive in Acts 2 is all throughout the letter of sharing. Even though these are, there's now local churches and they're spread all over the empire of Rome, not just like one single church taking care of itself anymore, where they could sell some things to, to take care of people in need, but 
but now, they're, now the church has grown and it's considerably bigger, but this principle expressed in Acts 2 is still being maintained and taught. One local church in Israel, in, in Israel the Jerusalem church, was struggling. They had a famine and, and, and everybody was, was really hurting. And just like in Acts 2, when there were people hurting, Paul reached out to all his churches and, and took up an offering. He asked them to jump in and help. Hey, we've got a church over here hurting. And, and he went to all of his churches and they all gave. And listen to how Paul talks about it. He says, I really don't need to write you about the ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help. And I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia, Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, uh, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I'm sending these brothers um, to be sure that you really are ready, as I've been telling them and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. I would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all, as I had told them. So I thought I would send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I wanted it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. So Paul's getting ready to go collect this gift, and he just sends kind of a, uh, a forward party to get there first. Make sure it's ready so when they get there, it's ready to go. And I, and I love that Paul um, is just taking this matter of fact. He's just sending guys to, to kind of make sure everything's ready to gather this gift um, that the church had gathered, this financial gift for a struggling church somewhere else in the world. And what we don't hear is Paul trying to convince them to give. Um, that they should be generous. We don't hear him making arguments for how it's good for you to give and, and how worthy of a cause this Jerusalem church is. And the generosity part is like a foregone conclusion. He just assumes they're going to be generous. Now they're just working out the details of how to, how to pick it up. But the generosity was already built in. Paul just dives right into the logistics of, okay, so how, here's how we're going to do this. And of course it makes sense. Our faith centers around Jesus whose entire existence is giving. He literally came to give himself as a free gift for those who could never pay him back for his generosity. To say that we follow Jesus but, um, and, and want to be like Jesus and we worship Jesus, but we really don't like the giving part is saying, like, we love the Chiefs, I just hate football. Like, it's, it can't happen. So, so generosity should just be part of our DNA as the church. Nothing else makes sense. But in this series, we're talking about packing our go bag for a year of, of going. Like, what do we need if we're going to reach out to the world? So what, is it, what, do, what do we need to look like? How does our generosity affect our witness to those whom we're supposed to go? In other words, how does our generosity affect our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members? And really, the answer is pretty simple. Because why... Would we ask people to buy into a product that we don't buy into ourselves? I mean, imagine if you were trying to, to gather investors in a company and, and they started asking you how much you've invested and you're like, what, me? Oh, nothing. Too risky. I don't like risk. No, I don't actually invest. If I were going to invest, I'd invest in something way more solid than me. Like any smart investor would run from that. Because listen, just plain old generosity should just be who we are. That's for sure. We follow generosity incarnate. That is who we follow. So we should be generous. 
This means helping our neighbor um, when they need help. It, it means giving to those in need. This means being generous with our time and, and our affection, even our grace extended to others when they make mistakes. We should be generous at heart. Our lives should just be flavored with generosity. And the second reason that, that it's important that, that we look at this this morning, because where our treasure is, that's where our heart goes. Jesus made it clear. Our heart goes um, with our treasure. And that is really, really important. Where our heart goes is important. So besides the basic generosity that we should just have in, in our DNA as believers, and, and honestly, I think we need to ask ourselves if we have bought into, um, and this is the big question, have we bought into sharing and spreading the gospel? So we should just be generous all the time, but, but that concept, the spreading of the gospel, have we bought into that? Do we support ministry that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we give to the church or, or some other ministry that is actively teaching God's word? Because if we don't, we, we are asking our friends and coworkers and neighbors to, to, to step away from this world that they're a part of and join into the life of being disciples who make disciples who make disciples um, then, then we're, and we're asking them to step into something that we don't invest in ourselves. We're asking them to buy a product that we don't buy. Paul wrestled with this a little in his first letter to the Corinthians. He said, don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings? In that same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported and by those who benefit from it. So Paul's basically saying, hey, part of the reaction to being spiritually best blessed by proclaiming God's Word is supposed to be supporting um, that process financially. Like supporting the church, supporting the ministry, supporting the, the thing that brought the blessing. It, it's simply saying, hey, this is a good thing. I'm glad this is here. I've been blessed by this. I want to keep this thing going. I want to, I want to be a part of this. I want to support this. It's really not rocket science. And this is where the, the teaching gets uncomfortable for me as a pastor because I can't teach God's Word about giving to support ministry without it looking like I'm personally benefiting from that teaching. Um, and I've struggled with this my entire Christian life. I remember studying the Old Testament for the first time um, and kind of my cynical mind, the way my cynical mind works. I was listening to Moses and Aaron command the Israelites for the very first time, how, how they should make sacrifices to God, how the, the worship with sacrifices was supposed to go, which sacrifices were supposed to bring to the tabernacle and things like that. And, and, uh, and it jumped out at me that other than the whole burnt offering, they were really only sacrificing a small portion of each animal. It was like the kidney and the liver and some fat from here and there, and they would throw on the fire and the smoke would go up, and they, that was the sacrifice. The rest of the ox became ribeye. That the priest ate, like they ate, they survived off the rest of that sacrifice, and 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 that didn't really bug me at first. But then Moses starts to explain the other offerings, and it just sounded weird to me because he's like, you know, we could also use a grain offering and maybe a wine offering that pairs well with red meat. Like that's kind of what that's kind of what it sounded like. And I know I'm I shouldn't think that cynically, but um, it's kind of sick the way my mind works sometimes. But that early in my study of Scripture, I struggled with the tension of honestly believing that Moses was giving God's Word, which he was, but also recognizing it kind of benefited him in a weird way. And, and it created this complicated public image. 
And I'm sure there were, there were those who felt like, you know, Moses was just asking for money. There's Moses again, always asking for money. And the church has wrestled with this tension forever. All of us have felt it. So here's the deal. I, I don't know how to escape that tension. So, so we're just going to own it and, and sit in that tension and be honest with it. It's a weird tension. That for me to teach what the Bible says about giving, it sounds like I'm asking you for money. That's a tension we just have to deal with. The truth is, I believe we're supposed to give to the church. Um, I also believe the, the, that most of us have grown sick of the way the church asks for money and makes people feel guilty if they don't give enough. And So let's just be honest about both and try to navigate the tension together. If, if you've ever heard me teach about tithing before, you, you've probably heard me talk about eating your own tithes. If, I don't have time to get into it, but it's from Deuteronomy 14 if you want to look it up and read it, if that sounds weird to you. But one of the reasons I think a person is supposed to give to their church is because that's where we're fed. We, we're, we're really providing our own food. We're eating our own tithes. We receive teaching and fellowship and community and discipleship and even rebuke here. And here only exists if we make it exist with our resources. So we're basically creating the space that we benefit from. We're eating our own tithes. But I also think we invest in the church because we want the gospel to go out and be proclaimed. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's beautiful. How can they call on Him uh, to, to save them unless they believe in Him? That's logic. And how can they believe in Him if they've never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone goes to tell them? And how can anyone go to tell them without being sent? That's why the Scripture says how beautiful are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. This is just Paul being incredibly practical. He's like, I totally believe in the Gospel. Love the Gospel. Save my soul. And I will never deny that. I'm pro-Gospel. And I want other people to hear the Gospel too. That's awesome. Which that means someone has to go and tell them about the Gospel, which means they need to have resources to be able to do that. It's... It's pretty black and white, which means someone's going to have to step up and send them or, or provide for them. Just practical. And we've all dealt with some version of that reality. We're, we're all like, this is what I would love to do for the kingdom or, or that I feel God's calling me. I want to do this. But I don't have the time to do this because of all, I'm always working. And if I only had more money, I wouldn't have to work so much. But if I want more money, I have to work more, and then we're back at the start again. And it's... And that same exact thing exists for the gospel. To get more money, we have to free up more time. To get more time, we have to free up more money. And, and Paul's like, guess what? Same dynamic for ministry as well. We want to reach the world with the gospel and do ministry and be a blessing, but it takes time and it takes money. And here's the church asking for money again. Back to the tension. So let's go back to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians where he's talking about this offering they're going to give to the Jerusalem church talking about being generous to this church that's hurting, and see how Paul handles the tension um, for, for this real need that required real money, but also that made things really uncomfortable. <laughs> also, remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your, uh, in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over 
to share with others. So we're just going to kind of highlight a couple things in here, not necessarily in any order, um, but let's break this down a little bit. He says, remember, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. This is super un- uncomfortable uh, because I have, and I'm sure you have, heard this exact scripture used as leverage to manipulate people to give more over and over and over again. You reap what you sow, right? If you want a big harvest, a big blessing, you have to give big. Like we've all heard it. I've heard it on the TV. I've heard it from pulpits. We've all heard it. But let's look at this a little differently. The principle is simple. If you want more, you have to, you have to plant more. Like that's simple math. Um, the uncomfortable truth is you can't outgive God. That's real. Um, when you give, he gives, which creates a bit of an investment mentality, which is weird. Um, and, but it's a reality. Uh, you plant seed and your harvest uh, gets bigger than the original seed, like it should. If you, if you were to plant one seed of corn and you got one seed of corn, that would be a waste of time. Like the reason you plant one seed of corn is hoping to get more corn. There's a profit involved. It's an opportunity, and we're back to that manipulating and leveraging, and it feels weird. But what this also means, the same reality of planting is that you can start with a single seed and eventually reap a big harvest. Track with me here. If all you have is one seed, then you can only reap so much harvest. But if you plant that one seed and you harvest what you can, like it barely feels worth it, right? I planted this, I barely got anything. But with patience and faithfulness, you plant that seed, you reap a small harvest, then you plant two seeds. And you reap a little bigger harvest. And the next time you plant three seeds or five seeds, and you get a little bigger harvest. It means no matter where you start with faithfulness and patience, your harvest can grow. So rather than look at this passage as a way to get a bigger blessing if you just dig deep and give as much as you can possibly give, what if we looked at it as a way to use faithfulness to build something sustainable no matter how small we have to start? So just speaking practically, if, 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 you just have, if you don't have anything to give, I suggest still giving something regularly, faithfully, even if it's a dollar. Or even if it's just an hour a month to serve. Or, just, or just, just planting seed and remaining faithful over time, trusting God that He'll bring a harvest that then you can reinvest and slowly build on. Next, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. Giving should take thought and prayer and relationship with God. It's not a knee-jerk reaction or an autopilot thing. Giving is very relational. The worst thing that can happen is for you to hear this message this morning, feel convicted about giving, and go back and drop a big check in the offering box. That is not what we want at all. Especially if it means that then you can't go pay your bills. That would be horrendous. And maybe not even be obedient to God. You just feel guilty because we talked about it. Or not having enough to give your neighbor when they need something because you dropped it all in the offering box. If you want to give, sit down with your finances and your spouse if you have one and do some dreaming and some praying. Ask God to speak to you about your giving. Ask God to stretch your faith a little if, if you're nervous about giving. But take your time and do it right. This is not a knee-jerk thing. Don't, you don't ever give under pressure. Which leads to our next one. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. 
This one is, is the, the last one. Obviously, they go together. This one and the last one. Um, don't be pressured into giving. That's not actually giving, it's taking. You're not giving, someone is taking. That's different. I believe if, 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 if you put your time in and you pray about how much to give the way you should and you feel God speak to you, even if he's stretching you, um, it won't feel like pressure. When God does it, it, it comes with like joy and enthusiasm. Even when the Holy Spirit is like pushing you to do something you don't want to do, he's also empowering you to do it, and, and that feels different. It doesn't feel like guilt. It doesn't feel like giving under pressure. It feels like God is calling you to something new and you're anxious to respond. So don't ever be pressured into giving because that's not really giving. I always tell people if, if, if you don't hear from God uh, and you don't know exactly how much to give, give 100% of what you can give cheerfully. 100% of what you can feel good about. Like this, It felt good to give that. Give 100% of that. God loves a cheerful giver. So whatever amount of seed you can sow with joy and cheerfulness, give that. And I honestly believe you'll, you'll find your cheerfulness growing even as the amount you give cheerfully starts to grow. And finally, if God will generously provide all you need, then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. This is the idea of sowing and reaping, the, the metaphor that Paul um, so often uh, use, used and, and now so often gets abused to manipulate people into giving more. This is not an investment. This is a lifestyle. We never, we never give so that we can get more. We give so that we can give more. Generosity is about setting a pattern of giving. This is, this is one of the problems I have with like the strict 10% tithe. Is, is we're all good enough at math to think, I'd love to give uh, more. So I'll give 10% and God will bless me with more and then my 10% will be bigger and then he'll bless me with more and then my 10% will be bigger. Incidentally, the 90% I get to play with is also getting bigger and that's not bad. And we're back to the investment thinking. But it could also be that, I, God, I want to start with 2%. And God meets my needs. And I see that he's meeting my needs as I go. So I bump it to 5. And that's exciting. And he meets my needs. And I see it. So now I'm giving 7. And God's there. And he's meeting me there. So I bump it to 10. Or maybe 15. Or, or I go crazy. And now I'm giving 20%. And somehow God's still meeting my needs and paying my bills. We don't necessarily have more disposable income than we did. We just started giving 10% and God keeps stepping up and showing up and so we keep responding with new generosity. It's a lifestyle of generosity. What Paul is describing in this entire passage is not an investment. He's talking about how to build a lifestyle of generosity. And believe me, in our like, I'm looking out for number one, I'm going to do me, I'm going to get mine world, nothing makes Christians stand out more than being generous. People don't know what to do with it. Because it's weird today. It, it's countercultural. It's odd to be generous today. No talk about going into the world and making disciples of all nations can be had without a conversation about generosity. My kids all the time will daydream about stuff they're going to have when they grow up, like the little ones. I'm going to buy a helicopter. And because I love crushing dreams, I'm always like, how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> And of course, they're unfazed. I'll buy it. I'll save up money. But can you imagine how ridiculous 
Jesus' command to go into all the world and make disciples sounded to a bunch of poor fishermen. Like, yeah, you, you, this little group here, you're going to go rock the world. And everybody starts looking in their pockets like, I've got 35 cents. Anybody got more than 35 cents? How does the church do that if, de- if generosity is not in the DNA? We cannot go without generosity. It's that simple. If we don't buy in with our time, with our resources, with our energy, this isn't just about money. If we don't buy in, we can't go. One of the hallmarks of, of the younger generation today, and if, if you're listening and you're in that younger generation, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your dumb friends. Okay, this is not about you. Um, but one of the hallmarks of this generation is that they want change. They're the most socially conscious, politically engaged young generation ever. They want to fix the world, but they don't want to pay for it. They don't want to work for it. They don't want to put in effort, real effort for it. They want the government or some other authority to do it for them. And I'm not blaming them. We raised them. This is our fault. This is on us. I'm not like, look at those awful people. Like, this is, we got to bear this. But my main point is that changing the world requires investment and commitment and faithfulness. Our hearts have to be in it. And Jesus said, your hearts go where your treasure goes. So how do we respond to this? Um, years ago, the kids' ministry that I was uh, leading did a fundraiser to support this ministry called International Justice Mission, IJM. Um, it's an organization that works tirelessly to end human trafficking, especially sex trafficking. They do a lot of work in China, and, and it's a pretty powerful ministry. It always starts... <clears throat> sorry, with uh, trying to do some legal work, trying to engage the law, blah, blah, blah. And once they hit a roadblock, they literally send in a group of guys to kick down doors, grab girls, and run. It's like, it's like hands-on stuff. Um, my oldest son and I kind of found this. Uh, he was a rock star. I can't remember what band, but like he was part of it, and he was one of the door kickers, man, and he loved it. Like he, um, They'd go in and storm these things and try to free girls from these terrible situations. Um, but anyway, during the, the fundraiser, Josiah, my oldest son, led worship tonight, or this morning, um, decided to read the book that the founder of IJM wrote. About halfway through the book, Josiah comes storming into my room one night. <laughs> and he was livid. Um, he was crying and cussing and kicking things and pacing back and forth in my room. And uh, and he wanted to go kick some doors down. Um, shoot. I wanted to... One of the stories from the book is like flashing through my head and I'm not even going to try to tell it. But uh, he wanted to kick some door down, save some girls. And he was raging in this feeling of impotence against such a huge problem. And that night, as a teenage boy, a fairly typical, selfish, self-absorbed teenage boy, Josiah got online, set up regular giving um, from his bank account to IJM that if he had to get a second job if needed, he was going to make sure that account was funded so he could continue to give to IJM. 
And so we got up and helped him set it all up. From the second his heart got engaged in this need, this real need, his wallet followed. It was instinctive. There was no second thought. If your heart is there, your wallet goes there. Period. He invested gladly, without question, without hesitation, because he believed in it. I wonder if the reason we feel uncomfortable with these conversations about church and money has less to do with our concerns about money and more to do with the fact that we aren't fully bought in with this idea of church, with this kind of passion. And here's the deal. As you know, if you've been here for a while, I don't pressure people to do much. I don't. I I don't think it's actually transformative to just respond to social pressure. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about changing us from the inside out. I want to see everyone actually transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just learning how to um, be guilted into some behavioral control. That's not what I think is productive at all. And, and that same reality exists this morning. Don't you dare give because you feel pressured to. That's, that's not the way this works. And if you don't have money right now, but you have time, don't volunteer just because you feel pressured to. Um, because here they're both basically the same. If you feel like maybe God is challenging you to start giving, um, but you're also struggling with feeling like I'm, I'm pressuring you somehow and that's confusing things, then give somewhere else. You don't have to give here at the church. I recommend some place that's, that's sharing the gospel, is preaching the gospel, but, but, uh, uh, and, and helping make disciples. But, but the discipline of giving is important. So it's important for you and for the church and for the world um, that desperately needs to hear the gospel that we give. It really is. And I think Open Table is a good ministry, personally. <laughs> Worthy of committing and contributing to. But I also know that many of us have been hurt by churches leveraging for money. And I would never want to exacerbate those wounds. So by all means, if it's too complex to give here and it feels too weird, then give somewhere else. That's fine. But if we are committed, if our hearts are committed to obeying the great commission of going into all the world and all the nations to make disciples, um, then it's simple. If our heart goes there, our money will go there too. So here's how I'd love to respond to this message. Pray, plant, repeat. Don't respond to this message by throwing your entire paycheck into the offering box, especially without talking to your spouse. Uh, played that game. Um, but do go home and pray about it. Be intentional to talk to God about your giving. If you don't currently give or serve here at Open Table, because they're the two sides of the same coin the way we see it. But if you don't currently give, ask God if you should start giving. And, and when he says yes, absolutely, because that's how he's going to answer, um, ask him where you start. Where should I start? How do I start? And when, and when you... You and God feel good about an amount? Plant that seed. Plant. However small. Give. 25 cents. Whatever. Start somewhere. Give. Be faithful and patient and watch God work. This is not a mutual fund. It's not like if I get this in, I get that out. That's not how it works. Plant your seed and watch God grow. It's a lifestyle that we settle into. And we begin to build this habit of generosity. And if you currently give, first, Thank you. We literally couldn't do this without you. But you need to do the same thing. When was the last time you you prayed about your giving? Or is it just on autopilot? 
And you took the time to listen for an answer. We talked last week about the, the need to be intentional about our health, and, and, and that means our financial health too. Be intentional about talking to God about it. Take it off autopilot and, and pray. Ask God if, if, if you and He are still comfortable with the amount you're giving. If so, great. That's, amazing. That's awesome. But at least take a few minutes to pray about it. And after you pray, plant that seed. Give cheerfully, knowing that, that you did the work of seeking God. And finally, repeat the process. Do it again. Build the habit of talking to God about your giving. Talk to God about your generosity. Learn to listen on a regular basis. Ask if you should serve more. God, is there somewhere I need to step up and serve more? Ask if, if, if you should help a friend or coworker. God, is there somebody I need to go bless? The, the, this needs to not be a taboo topic. This needs to be something we can talk about easily and casually. Whether you, you give $1,000 a week or a dollar a week, generosity is not a dollar amount. It's a heart posture. And it's important that we get that right. Amen? You guys still love me? Let's go to the table.